Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is A Lot To Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Without further ado, here's Austin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is. It's a podcast and you listen to podcasts whenever you might listen to them. Perhaps you're sitting at home studying right now and you need a break. And do I have the guest for you? Because today we have author Scott Young, the author of Ultra Learning, a nine-point technique on improving your brain. Uh, oh, all right, Scott, welcome. Oh, it's so great to be here. Uh Ultra learning, that is a really, that's a new word. Yeah. Ultra learning. How do you coin this? Yeah. So the idea was to focus on people who have done two types of things. So people who have learned things on their own, mastered hard skills, uh, often, you know, without the normal support of like, you've just gone to a school and someone's just told you what to do. And I think that's very important because for many of us, what we want to learn, it's going to be kind of hard to go back to school. Maybe you can't go back to university. Maybe you can't go into a system and have someone hand coach you through it. So you need to teach yourself. And then the second thing I wanted to focus on is people who have just done remarkable things. And so the ultra part of ultra learning is, you know, people who really love learning and have taken it seriously and accomplished things from learning languages to success on Jeopardy and um, all sorts of interesting projects, built businesses, mastered new skills, these kinds of things. So, uh, so yeah, twofold. You've got people who need or desire a new skill and this is techniques for that but you've got the other people who are people who are natural lovers of learning and this is yeah. sort of this embodies them and so it's how these two separate disciplines of people work together to you know improve your skills in your daily and professional life well yeah that what i wanted to do with the book was show people how they can teach themselves really anything they want to whether that's a new language whether that's a skill to advance in their career whether it's something like public speaking or interviewing right. a podcast for instance. right these are all skills that really matter to us in our life and there's often not a class there's often not a teacher that's going to guide you through and tell you exactly how to do it so how do you acquire those skills on your own and so the ultra part of ultra learning is just looking at people who do this the best and see if you can look from those examples and see what you can take away from that to really improve how you learn any skills, whether or not it's something really grand and ambitious or just something small that you want to get better at. Got it. So, you know, Gladwell has the 60,000 hours or 60, I think it was, is that what it is? 60,000? 10,000. 10,000. That's a lot. 10,000 <laughs> hours to become expert on mm -hmm. something. Uh, and talk through some of the case studies of these people who have gone down this rabbit hole and, and said, I need X skill in Y amount of time. Right. How do I do it? You know, for example, um, one of our producers, Maria, her, her friend is in the State Department and in an ultra immersive French class. Oh, right? Wow, yeah. What, how, do you, how does one even start? when I say I need one of these skills, where do I start? Oh man, that's a really good example because where this started with me was actually with, of all things, French. So I'm in university, I'm going on an exchange to France for a year, I'm super excited, you know, you get to live abroad for a year. 
And one of the things I want to do is I wanted to come back speaking French. I thought it would be so cool to, you know, go to another country and come back and begin speaking the language. So one of the things I did is when I, when I was in the school, I decided I'm going to talk to everyone who's been on exchange the year before and ask them, you know, did you learn the language? And like, what did you do about that? And one thing that was really surprising for me is that of the people who hadn't studied it for years in school, so meaning that they weren't already speaking when they went to the country, there wasn't a single person I interviewed who had learned the language after they'd lived in that country for a year. And so wait, wait, was, explain, explain that again. They, okay. they, no one had tried? No, no, no. It was just that you asked them, okay, you, like, let's say you've lived in Mexico for, yes. for you know, nine months. Yeah. And then I said, hey, you know, did you learn some Spanish? And they're like, well, you know, like a little bit, but not, not very much. Like I couldn't really have a conversation in Spanish. Or, oh, you were in Hong Kong. Did you, did you learn any Cantonese? No. You, you were in French. Did you learn any and, French? And this was across no. the board. This was across the board. And it's very interesting huh. for me because it's like you imagine that you go to this other country, you're going to learn the language. And it was only after I landed there that I realized... What the problem is, is that you go there and it's very easy to form this bubble of English around you. So you can study a lot, even if you're really serious about it. It's very hard to have that immersive experience if, let's say, your classes are in English because you have to pass grades to get the, the marks back home. And so it was around this time when I'm in France for a while, now that I'm experiencing it firsthand and how difficult it is, that I encountered the first sort of ultra learner, the first person who kind of set me on this path. Some, this the first the outlier who said... I actually did learn the language. Well, not just a language, but more than 10. This guy's name is Benny Lewis. And he was just starting as a blogger there for a blog that he called quite, quite modestly Fluent in Three Months, which was about his challenge to go to a new country and not just like in a year to try to get fluent, but he was trying to get fluent in three months. And like most people, when you encounter someone who's doing something so much better than you, so much faster, yeah. your first reaction is, oh, that's, that's BS. There's yeah. no way that you can do that. But I just kind of felt like I had to meet this guy. I had to see what he understood about learning languages that I didn't. And when I met him, what I realized is it wasn't just that he was using some little trick. It wasn't like, oh, there's some like quick trick to learn a language. It was this whole philosophy around learning was different from how I was approaching it. So while I was trying to study at home, you know, trying to master some vocabulary and like timidly trying to speak a little French, he was diving in. So very first day he'd have a phrase book and he would be like, just, you know, memorize some phrases, start talking to people. And so he was going into immersion and because he was going into immersion, he was racking up tons of practice time. So he was condensing the experience I was trying to have over a year or many people have over many years of learning a language in school over just a period of a few months. And so this experience of interacting with him and seeing how he did things was, was sort of the first little light bulb that often you can acquire hard skills in less time than people expect just because you think outside the box of this is what people expect you to do when you're in a classroom or when you're in a normal learning environment. And if you can go beyond that, you can often do incredible things like, for instance, learning dozens of languages. Now, there's one thing that you said in there that, uh, that really... Uh, light bulb to me, yeah. which was there is a degree of uh, self-risk and sort of ballsiness in yeah. this, oh, at least in the language, but then I'm just sort of extrapolating it to all of them. Like, you got to set yourself up for failure to, oh, yeah. to start, correct? Like, I'm imagining I'm a musician and I'm yeah. imagining like being in my age right now, 31, just kidding, 40, uh, being my age right now and being like, go learn violin right now. Yeah. You, it's you, scary. you got to yeah. be ready to get humiliated. Well, it's not even just that. It's just that often when you're approaching a normal kind of goal, like, okay, I, we were just talking about writing a book because you're in the process of doing that too right now. And 
when you're writing a book, there's sort of a, okay, you know, I kind of have some idea of what that's going to entail. But whenever we're talking about a learning project, the scary thing is, is that because you don't know what it is to learn it, you don't know the subject yet, it's sort of going into the unknown. Like if you've never learned another language before and you want to become fluent in a new language, there's a certain sense that you're not quite sure what to do. And you're not, so it's not even just the fear or the uncertainty. There's also this real going into the unknown that can often stop people from making progress because you know they went and they had five years of high school Spanish classes and you know they can't say beyond como estas and yeah and they feel that nervousness of like how would I go and approach that and so this book I wanted to try to give people some tools so they can approach that real unknown frontier with some confidence okay so I I uh, what are there were here there are nine tools right yeah nine principles nine These principles are, yes. <laughs> let's let's go into sure. them actually first before yeah. we do that let's start how we got in contact yeah because yeah. Uh, I'll tell a story and you'll you'll back it up uh, Roger Craig my jeopardy all-stars uh, compatriot, uh, was one of the case studies for your ultra learning. Yeah, he was an example of one of the ultra learners I met. And uh, he was someone that I first found his story and I thought, this is exactly the kind of story I want to feature because it wasn't only that he was on Jeopardy. And obviously, Je being on Jeopardy, to participate at that level, you need to know a lot of things. You need to learn a lot of trivia. You need to do all those things. But it was also how systematic he was about it. It was how much he was really thinking, not just about here, how do I study a lot, but how do I optimize the process of studying? How do I figure out exactly what I need to learn? How do I master yes. what I need to master the game? And so he's one of the examples of these people I call ultra learners. So he's one of them. Another example I have is Eric Barone, who mastered all the skills of video game development to release a best-selling video game. Now he's multi-multi-millionaire. Um, people like uh, one of the people in the book that I, I had the privilege of working with while I was working on the book is Tristan Montebello, who went from having near zero public speaking experience to being a finalist for the world champion of public speaking in about seven months. And it was through this, again, the similar sort of process of not only using the right principles for learning, which is very important, but also this kind of enthusiasm and intensity and real like a desire to learn that goes beyond what I think most of us uh, typically see. Right. Because, and I, I've witnessed that firsthand, uh, you know, to use Roger's case study, yeah. when I was studying for Jeopardy, I watched case studies and tutorials online on YouTube beforehand, and I remember one specifically that broke Jeopardy categories up into four quadrants, and there's high risk, high value, low risk, low value, high reward, blah, 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 and high frequency, yeah. low frequency, and he's just like, there are these bubbles where you... You can actually just write off knowing anything about French cathedrals because you only have to know three French cathedrals. Yeah. And I'm like, this guy is awesome. He's flash forward, the game, yeah. Flash forward a year and a half later, and Roger's on my team yeah. coaching me and my teammate, Leo, through the Jeopardy process. Yeah. And then I realized, I go, no way. Yeah. Roger, Craig, the guy on my team, I watched your video that breaks down Jeopardy into sort of a SWOT analysis. Yeah. And like, you don't have to stay like, and, and, that, and that's become one of my favorite anecdotes on people studying for Jeopardy. I go, if it just says cubist, it's Picasso. <laughs> that's all you need to know. If it says cubist and Picasso in the clue, 
that means it's not Picasso. Therefore, it's George Brock. There's only one other yeah. cubist, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, so I find that really fascinating how well, to exactly, hack the learning. That's exactly what I'm talking about is that like one of the reasons I was interested in him is because, you know, I have not been on Jeopardy. So I'm not a master of trivia. This is not my sort of domain of expertise. But what really interests me is if you think about, okay, learning Jeopardy. I mean, it's just an example. It's like learning anything. But Jeopardy feels like well, you just have to learn everything. You just have to know everything. Incorrect. And this is exactly there right. There you go. He's saying, no, 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 you, you have to understand exactly what kinds of questions they ask and what you need to, to work on to do it. And so this is not just true for Jeopardy, though. This is true for learning languages. This is true for learning public speaking. This is true for learning so many skills. Right. You don't need to know that esoterica in the language. You don't need to know, like scientific terms when you're learning French. You need to know how to interact with the person on the street because you're never going, that's, an, that's a statistical outlier. That, that arcane sort of specialist language, you don't yeah. need that. Well, even more than that, you need to know how to communicate with people. And so I think sometimes when we're talking not even just about learning languages, but about learning skills in general, we often forget what they're for. And if you don't think about what they're for, often Again, you're learning things that maybe aren't that useful, but you're often also learning them in ways that aren't super useful. So one of the principles I discuss in the book, and it's a really big principle that has all tons of psychological research to back it up, is this idea of directness. And so what directness is, is that there is literature going back literally over 100 years showing that people are very bad at something called transfer. So transfer is where you learn something in one context, and then you want to apply it in a different one. So let's say you want to learn something in a classroom, and then you want to apply it in real life. And there are many, many examples showing that people tend to be a lot worse at this than you would expect. So one of my favorite studies is that in one study, economics majors did not do better on questions of economic reasoning than non-economics majors in a university, which begs the question of what the heck are they studying yeah. in their university degree? Or another example where students who took a high school psychology class did not do better at college level psychology, which one would expect, you know, having some background in psychology would help. Or another example is that students who graduated with honors in physics classes were often unable to solve problems, physics problems, that differed in form just slightly from how they were presented in the school. And this is a very worrying thought because we spend a lot of time in schools learning and we think that we're trying to acquire meaningful and useful skills and yet it often doesn't transfer. And so the ultra learning philosophy and really what has come up not only in Roger Craig's case that we're talking about Jeopardy, but Benny Lewis with his language learning and Tristan Amontevel with public speaking, is that if you can tie your learning to the direct context you want to use it in early, either through directly practicing in that situation or through some kind of faithful simulation, the way you might do if you were practicing actual Jeopardy questions from past shows, you can hone in on what skills you need to learn and also learn them in a way so that you'll be able to activate that knowledge when you need it. So activation is the next principle. Well, activation is a general idea, uh, not, not one of the specific principles, but it's related to this idea of directness. And I think the way I would summarize it for people is that often it's not enough to just know something. You need to be able to activate that knowledge in the right situation. So I've got a, I've got a little example of Please, this, which I yeah. think is, is kind of fun. So I, I run a small business and sometimes we, we charge sales tax for things. And I don't know how it is wherever you're listening from, but where we have sales tax, you add it to the price of the purchase. So if something was $100, you charge the customer $112, right? But for some reason, our software couldn't do that calculation. So at the end of the year, we have to figure out how much sales tax we owed. And so this person who was calculating for us was like, oh, well, if it was you know $100 that we made, then uh, it's $12 in sales tax. And I was like, no, no, actually not, because 
if you take $12, $12 is not 12% of $88, which is the amount that we would have charged them. And so once you write out the little, it's, you know, 1.12 times X is equal to this, and then you do this a lot. As soon as you write that out, he was like, oh, I know how to solve that immediately. But the problem was he didn't think this was an algebra problem. He didn't think he had to use algebra to solve it. So he just thought, well, it must just be 12%. That must be the answer. And so this is an example where right. it's not enough to learn how to do algebra. You have to know when, what are the few situations where I need to use algebra. And I mean, math is a pretty esoteric example. But no, but that was a great example because it's like, not $100. No. It's, it, it's, yeah, you, it's, it's somewhat less than that. Exactly. Like, I can't do it in my head, yeah. But. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this uh, this concept of the lack of uh, of transfer. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. It's very interesting because, like, there's a lot of psychological studies. Like, uh, you know, we can't multitask. Like multitasking is a total myth. Anyone yeah. who says that they can is a liar. Yeah. <laughs> They're actually doing several things poorly yeah. and not one thing well. Uh, and like distracted driving. Mm -hmm. You know, the second you put touchscreen in front of someone in a car. There's, Absolutely. there's no, there's no choice, there's no chance of them being able to. So in researching for this book, I found all sorts of examples of places where our intuition about how we think and how we learn is wrong from the actual reality. So transfer is one of those examples. Multitasking is another example. So the transfer myth is that you read a book or you listen to a podcast like this one, and suddenly you should be able to apply that immediately to all situations. And it just turns out to not be the case. And the way you overcome in the case of directness is to, if you want to learn a concrete skill, you got to tie it down to a real situation or a reasonable facsimile of that situation pretty early on. But there's another really good principle, and this is one that I think uh, is very important for the students. So I know you mentioned you started this one if you're maybe doing some studying. So if you're listening to this and you're a student, this is a very useful principle, and this principle is called retrieval. So I want to tell you this study done by Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt uh, out of Purdue University, and it is fascinating for me. So what they did is they took students and they divided them into multiple groups. One of the groups, they got to do repeated review. So this means that you have the text in front of you, and you read it, but then you read it again and again and again until you run out of time, and that's how you're studying. And this is how lots of students study for lots of tests. Like, I mean, maybe they do something a little bit more elaborate, like maybe they're recopying some notes, or maybe they're using multicolored pens and highlighting and encircling stuff. So maybe they're doing a little bit more than just rereading. But still, yeah. Yeah, but it's, that kind of thing. Yeah. Another group did what was known as free recall. So when you read the text, you read it once, you shut the book, and then you try to remember everything that you can that you just read. And this practice of free recall is called free recall because recall, obviously, you're trying to recall from memory, and free because there aren't any questions or prompts. So it's not like a flashcard or a quiz where they give you the questions. You just have to try to remember everything you can. And this study was very interesting because after they did this studying, they asked the students, how well do you think you learned the information? And the people who did repeated review gave themselves high marks. They said, you know what? I really learned the information. The people who did free recall were like, oh, wow, that was hard. I didn't remember a lot of what I just covered. But when you do a test, it flips. The free recall free people recall outperform. Much better than the people who do repeated review. And so this, I think, leads to many students getting in this situation where they do lots of studying. And for, for those just listening at home, I'm doing scare quotes with my fingers right now. But... They do a lot of studying and then they get to the test and they don't do so well. And they say, oh, that test was so unfair. I knew all of that. But why did they ask those tricky questions that I, I just couldn't remember it on the test? And it's because they're doing review and they're not doing retrieval. And it, very interestingly, the study authors show that part of the reason is that it's a sort of a defect of our own psychology that 
We're not actually able to tell how well we're going to remember something when we first encounter it. So instead we have to use some other signal, some other sign to be able to determine how well we'll remember something. And one of the things that we do is we think of how easy does this feel when I'm reading it or reviewing it. And as you read something over and over again, it gets easier and easier. It becomes more and more familiar. Yeah. And so you feel like you're remembering it better and better, but you're not. Free recall, on the other hand, is super hard. So you feel like you haven't remembered it at all. But the thing you're doing when you're practicing free recall is much better for your long-term memory. So you gotta you gotta surmount a again. There's another personal challenge here. You got to cement a, co a confidence issue yeah. when you're engaging in free recall learning because you have to say, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's working, but you have to make a leap of faith that it is right and it is Absolutely. working. I mean, there were times, I keep bringing this back to Jeopardy, yeah, yeah. but because it's it. just it's just a grounding Jeopardy, context, yeah. there will be times where I was sitting in the bar uh, watching, having my viewing party, and I see... Austin on TV answer a question that Austin sitting in the bar does not know. <laughs> uh, people will be like, this really tough one will come up and be like, I have no idea. And then I watch me on the TV get it, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, where did that come from? And there, there, mm -hmm. I, 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 maybe I am innately sort of a free recall learner because yeah. I, I get bogged down and I get lost when I'm in the flashcard, memorizing world capital things, blah, 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 blah. But if you just like yell one at me, I'll be like, oh, Yamasukro, you know? Um, yeah. So... No, that's very interesting. There's you know, a confidence issue. We were talking about confidence, and this is so perfect because it just cues me up to talk about this other study that Karpicki did on retrieval. And this study, um, so the one that I just mentioned, the students didn't have a choice. They were just told how to study, and then we compared their results. In this study, students were given the opportunity to choose how they wanted to learn. And what they found is that I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That weaker performing students, so the students who didn't know the material better, tended to elect to do uh, like the re the repeated review approach to studying as opposed to write the flashcards, highlight uh, the everything, you know. Even, yeah, not even flashcards, or just rewrite, reviewing and yeah. doing this kind of thing. They elected to do that. However, if you force those people to use free recall so that they don't feel ready to do free recall, they don't feel ready to quiz themselves, they want to review it first. If you force those people, nonetheless, to do free recall, they do better on tests. So it seems that even when we have the opportunity to choose how we want to study, we often don't make the right choice because we think we have to wait until we're ready. And what the research shows is that actually doing this kind of practice even before you're ready might actually be more beneficial. Now, so again, thrown into the deep end works too because that forces you to 
absolutely make confident decisions, right? Yeah. Um, but it seems like there's there's a, a holistic ecosystem of all these learning techniques. Like yeah. one's not a panacea that just solves all of your problems. No. So how do you how do you combine? You're not carrying a sword. You're carrying a Swiss Army knife, yeah. right? Yeah. How do you how do you put together this portfolio of learning techniques to make sure you're not flashcarded out in one learning yeah. technique and then you're not blindly free recalling in the other technique because yeah, yeah. it seems like you need the whole thing to come together. Yeah. So what I try to do in the book is I have these nine principles and I, I call them principles as opposed to techniques because really they suggest a lot of methods. So if we talk about directness, for instance, which is one of the principles we covered before, which is just this idea that the way that you're practicing needs to be close in how you actually have to think and do things to the real situation, the better you will be. And so if you take this principle, then obviously in every different, like if we're talking about learning a language or we're talking about learning public speaking or we're talking about learning chemistry, that, that's going to be very different in each context. And so there are some ways that we can talk about if you're in a school situation, the way that you might apply directness is I'm going to do practice tests because practice tests are the closest thing to the real test that exists out there. Ah. Similarly, if we're talking about language learning and your goal is to have conversations, then doing some kind of immersive practice, maybe getting a tutor or maybe getting someone online to have a conversation with you is going to be better than, you know, let's say playing on a fun app where that's not actually that similar to actually speaking a language in a conversational situation. And so there's lots of different tactics in the book that we talked about, you know, there's Roger Craig is a big fan of like space repetition systems and different things like this. And those are tech tactics for applying some of these broader ideas of things like retrieval and directness. And well, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch more that we can go through in the book if you guys have time. No, absolutely. Let's go through some of the other techniques. And I like the, I like the term tactics yeah. because you are approaching this from a tactical, not yeah. strategic level, because it seems like every single circumstance of these learning of the learning end goal is always on a very laser focused level it's not going to be I, I i correct me if i'm yeah, wrong yeah. but you can't apply ultra learning techniques to the entirety of western philosophy but you could maybe to just on the works of kant well i think yeah so the focus is i think important for again this this idea of directness just because you need to have some sense of how are you going to practice this information? So I think that that is often helpful. And so I wouldn't say so much in terms of the breadth, like you're, you're sort of welcome to, to try and learn philosophy. That's probably more than one project. That's probably multiple projects. But the idea here is being that how are you going to use this philosophical knowledge? And even if we're talking about something super, you know, philosophical is about as theoretical and abstract as it gets. I mean, you're not using, like, I'm going to get out a bank loan. Let's remember what Immanuel Kant said. But, <laughs> but I mean, you uh, want Fuck the to police, know, I, yes. think, I think. I think, <laughs> think that's what he said. Yes. How does the categorical imperative apply here? Um, you know, uh, in, in any case, what, what we're trying to do, though, is think, I think that's a very good preliminary step whenever you want to learn anything is to ask yourself, what kinds of situations are you likely to use it? And this is a hard exercise for a lot of subjects. If we're talking about philosophy, it might be like, wow, I don't plan on using it at all. But that's not really true because where you want to use it is to learn something else or you want to use it to have a conversation with someone or so that you can, you know, when you're reading that big book where someone talks about, you know, uh, deontological morality, you're like, oh, I know, I what, know that, what that I means. I know what that word yeah. means. Yeah. So I think... This is a useful exercise, even if what you end up doing is, I just want to read this so I can read other books and have conversations. There's your end game. 
Well, it's to, it's to conceptualize how is this skill going to actually hit reality. And so one, one idea I, I like to think about is that, so this is, I'm going to get a little abstract on you, so hopefully the readers will appreciate or listeners mm-hmm. will appreciate mm-hmm. this little detour, but the brain is a learning organ. That is like, you know, the way the heart pumps blood and the lungs, you know, breathe. The brain is an organ of learning. Yes. That is what it, that is what it is designed for. And this way that we have evolved to learn things is to deal with the practical realities of, you know, being a creature that exists on this planet, to take things that we see and perceive and hear, and then turn that into actions and things that we do. Right. And so the way to think about learning as the kind of the, the main way to think about learning in terms of this is the default strategy for learning is something closer to learning directly or learning by some kind of apprenticeship where someone, you do something and someone says, oh, don't, do, don't make the fire that way, make it this way or do this. And the school type of learning, the type of memorizing facts, memorizing trivia is a little bit of an unusual way of learning. It's not something that, you know, cavemen were not, you know, memorizing things for their SAT tests. Right. Right. And so the more we can take the ways that we learn things in this scholastic sense, in in being able to memorize facts and being able to understand concepts and being able to, you know, like you said, stand up on the Jeopardy stage and belt out the answer at exactly the right moment, the more we can convert that into the mode of learning that our brains have been designed to do, the more effective our results will be. Which is basically our primitive, actionable... I, I... I throw rock at squirrel to eat squirrel, right? Like, yeah. but you gotta you gotta see someone throw the rock at the squirrel because yeah. you don't you don't push the rock at the squirrel. You throw the rock, yeah. but someone has to show you how to throw the rock. So that practicality is, and also mm-hmm. each of um each of those instances, there's little packages of learning within. Oh, yeah. So you're 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 breaking down into a little salient package with actionable intelligence that you grow to build a pyramid to get to your ultimate goal. Well, and the thing too is that we tend to assume... Did that, that make like, any sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, the thing too is that we tend to assume that like primitive people are are not intelligent, that like they're not as intelligent as we are. And I remember reading, um, I think it was Jared Diamond in his uh, famous book, Guns, Germs, Steel. And he has this great story about being in, I think it was the Papua New Guinean jungle with some, you know, hunter-gatherer tribes people. And he was saying they were cooking some mushrooms. And those mushrooms look very similar to ones that would be deadly, deadly poison if you eat it. And he says to them, he says, you know, well, be careful because I know some other, you know, anthropologists who have been here that have gotten very sick from accidentally eating those, those mushrooms. And they were like, only a dumb white person like you would mistake this that, mushroom for, for that, that mushroom. mushroom. Yeah. And so the idea he's trying to clarify there is that the way that we were living in our sort of previous life, you had to know tens of thousands of different plants and animals. You had to know how to make your own medicine, yep. how to make your own fire, how to survive, uh, how to store things for the winter. Yep. There was a description of how people were making like flint bows and arrows, and it's like a 42-step process. Yeah, so yeah. We are, we are extremely effective learners. And even just think about regular things. I was having a conversation with someone how we were sitting in a, a, at, a at a cafe, and the waiter came up and got the check, and... And like we paid the bill and we, you know, decided also like the social custom of do we split it or does someone treat or this kind of thing. And if you were to map that out as like a recipe of like all the steps involved, it's super complicated. Yeah. And yet there's five steps in like some, you know, CPR manual you have to learn. You can't remember those. And so it's just because the way we learn this social knowledge this is, is like, this is yeah. our flint bow and arrow yes. right the way yeah. we interact with a waiter or cross the street or swipe the metro card or go through like okay yeah, i remember yeah. one day in cultural anthropology yeah. uh and it was it was a cultural anthropologist 
describing this bizarre ritual in which two sides are against one another and the the crowd uh, the crowd dresses in a manner akin to the two tribes, and they hurl objects. And he's describing a baseball game. <laughs> he's describing a baseball yeah, yeah. game, right? And he's and and the exercise was this is cultural anthropology because this guy is trying to describe a baseball game. And do you see? This was an actual cultural anthropologist describing yeah. a baseball game in a cultural anthropology yeah. way. It's like, do you see? How freaking wrong he is! Yeah, yeah. How wrong he was! How far out he was yeah. in describing a baseball game because he applied his symbology and his ethos yeah. and stuff like that. So, if you break everything down into these tiny, like little repetitive steps, then we've sort of hit the key. Well, and I think this is part of the the goal that I had in writing this book, Ultra Learning, is that for so many people, when you talk about learning, they think school. And they think reading stuff in books and remembering stuff in books. So I've had conversations with people where I'll talk about, you know, oh, I, I like to write about learning. or And they say, oh, you know, I'm not a student anymore, so I don't do any of that. And I'm like, you're crazy. Do it. You're learning nonstop. That, like, that is what your brain does is learn. And the problem is that I think we have been sort of encultured into this idea that the only learning that takes place or the only real learning that takes place is the kind that happens in school and all the things that you learn when you're going out and doing things. That's the aberration. That's just living your life. And it's the and other it's way the around. It's the opposite. And so the idea for this book is that obviously there are many, many things that you are an excellent learner on. Everyone here is probably knows how to drive a car. They probably yep. know how to cook a meal. Yep. They probably know how to order know, open on, a bank account. How to order or, online. Yeah. They, Again. They, they know how to use an iPhone. Like, I mean, these are all skills that are quite complicated. Right. And so my goal with talking about this book is that it's just leverage the fact that we're actually all Always really good learning. learners. But the problem is that so many of the skills that we think we'd like to learn, we get stuck for various reasons, whether it's a language, whether it's public speaking, whether it's and you know, program. Oh my God! There's, there's the ah, Scott. There's the revelation. There's the revelation. You just, you hit it. Uh, I, I love that. We are apply our everyday actions, which are learning, to the actual learning that you need to accomplish. Yeah. Like, oh, oh God. <laughs> now, how does that translate to chemistry, though? Yeah. So I think part of it is again, like if we're talking about you're a student and your goal is to pass a test. And we can talk about it in that narrow context. So that is itself a kind of skill is, is doing well in the class. And I don't think it's a minor thing. For many of the people listening here, if you are a student, if you're, you know... It's uh, the most important yeah, thing. If, if you've got a big accounting exam coming up and it determines your whole profession, then like... You know, me saying, oh, well, who cares about the test? You have to, like, you have to do, you have to the, do test, the test. You have to do the test, yeah. And so things like retrieval practice are important. Things like directness in terms of do practice questions that resemble the kinds of questions you're going to do on the test. These are all really important tactics. And there's lots of little small things. For example, the spacing effect. The spacing effect has been known, again, for many, many years. Describe the spacing so the effect. The spacing effect is basically this. If... If let's say let's say I give you a new word to learn because this is often how these experiments do it's, it it applies to a lot more than this but they do this for these experiments to make it simpler but I give you a new word to learn or an association between two words and I get you to repeat it to yourself ten times same amount of time say let's say you spend, spend like three minutes doing it or I get you to do that uh, ten times over ten days so you go do one day once per day once per day once per day for ten days. In the latter case, you are going to retain that little factoid much, much longer than if you did 10 times in a row. And so the idea of the spacing effect is that when we encounter things in school, the way it often works is unit one, 
and then you do homework for unit one, and then, okay, forget about unit one. Now it's unit two. And then, okay, forget about unit two. Now unit three, unit four. And then at the end of the test, it's like, okay, what was on unit one? I only remember unit it. four. Exactly. And so one of the things, uh, I worked with a guy who uh, is doing his PhD in cognitive science, and we put together a guide on my website about uh, long-term memory, which is a lot of the ideas that are incorporated in this book as well. And one of the things that we had as a useful hint is that you should think about whenever you encounter any information that you need to remember for the test, trying to remember it five times before the actual test. And it doesn't have to be super elaborate. It doesn't have to mean like you've you know, spent you know, hours and hours and hours studying, but just a little bit, maybe just a little bit every day. You just sort of, okay, let's just review you know, a random selection of the facts from the, this, this case. You, know, you just spend half an hour each morning doing that study. You will remember that information after the fifth time much, much better then, you know, your two weeks of, you know, haste, hastily cramming right before the exam. And so planning and actually being able to set up your learning in a way so that you do have that repetition, you do have that spaced repetition can be extremely valuable from an efficiency perspective because you just won't forget the things that you spend so much time trying to learn. Now, I see these techniques which are... <sighs> Pardon the, I'm not yeah, going to yeah. be, uh, but I see these as applicable management skills in like a corporate or institutional, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't see the entrenched educational system saying, well, we've got these scientifically based skills. Why? That, that would be an upheaval in the entire Western culture of the <laughs> educational system. I can see I can see a maverick CEO come in and applying ultra learning to his employees by mandate being like, you're going to learn this. Or like, uh, like Maria's friend in the State Department, you must learn French. Yeah. This is the only way to do it. But how can we how can we get these into our children's hands yeah. and our students' hands? Because it seems and you've got the science to back it up if you read ultra learning that this is the way we should be doing things yeah and i think so there's two things i'll say first of all uh there are now I, we did well yeah we yeah. just we just went into the realm of yeah. like policy making which is not but your here, expertise no. but, here, but I'll, say, I'll say a couple things on it because first of all there are a lot of teachers and educators and curriculum designers that do know these principles again these are not principles i invented and for things like transfer if you have studied this, it's been known for, again, almost a century. So these are not brand new ideas. Now, there are obviously teachers and, and educators, and especially at the university level, where people have never done a course on educating. They've only learned the subject that they're a professor in. And so there are places where certainly these things depart from the ideal. But there are great language tutors. There are great math high school math teachers. There are lots of people that do understand these principles and try to apply it. And so why I wrote this book was not to give them this information, because there's many books written for teachers about how to be a better teacher if you'd like to do this, but recognizing that in order to learn well, we need to meet each other halfway. And so the teachers have to try to teach in a way that will help the students, but the students have to, to learn, learn in a way, in a way that, that helps help themselves. Learning. Because when we're talking about, let's say, learning a language, for instance, I have talked to language tutors that will say things like, okay, I'm going to discuss some things in the class, and then you have to go out and practice. And students are like, nah, I just want to do the homework assignments and pass the test and get an A. And they don't realize that if they don't do that practice, they're never going to learn the language. And so the idea is that I hope is that by reading this book, by getting people to think critically about not only how do I succeed at school or how do I pass tests, but how do I actually get the knowledge and skills that I want? And if I think critically about that, then a classroom, a book, a mentor, a tutor, these are all just tools. These are all just things that I can come and interact with to get the results that I want. Back and to so the Swiss Army to, knife. Yeah, I want to empower people 
to take control of mastering things in their own lives rather than just being a passive recipient of whatever the educational system has to offer. There we go. So it is a two-way street. So yeah, mm -hmm. I, and okay, I think you sort of ob yeah. obliquely answered the question. Yeah. If you find yourself in this institutional regime of rote standard teaching yeah. and you, there's no escape from it, well then it's the onus is upon you to apply these techniques to surmount the fact that that is the inefficient way to learn yeah. but luckily you've got this toolbox called ultra learning that you could go back into so when you are in that dry sedimentary <laughs> calcified coursework that the teacher is just bueller bueller right <laughs> if you're if you are if you are confronted with that kind of learning atmosphere you go to this toolbox. That's that's on you to go to this toolbox to apply it to get over it. And I mean, I think it's just so much more rewarding when, you know, you have a choice in life whenever you're faced with anything that you can decide to make the most of it and make it a rewarding experience for yourself or you can just suffer through it. And so for a lot of students, I think, <laughs> again, when you go into school, yeah, maybe it's not going to be ideal. Maybe you'll read this book and think, why don't my teachers do X, Y, or Z? Or you can say to yourself, okay, this teacher is doing the best that they know how to do. And I'm going to try to do the best that I know how to do to learn something that I actually care about. And you know what's funny? I've had a lot of conversations with students and they will say things like, well, yeah, I know you say that, you know, X, Y, or Z about learning or like it's important to understand things or, you know, there's all sorts of things. But no, my teacher just cares about just, you know, I just have to memorize the exact definition of this answer and they don't care about understanding anything. And often that's false. And often they've been led to believe that because their own ineffective studying methods think that, well, the only way I would have gotten the right answer is if I just memorized this. And they get this kind of, they huff and they pump, stomp their feet like, oh, I just have to memorize this. When the teacher's like, no, 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 I wanted you to understand it. I wanted you to be able to use it. But you just sort of took your lack of ability on the test as signs that, well, I just had to go back and memorize this, uh, this fact. You know? If you are, and you encounter this all the time where like the casual student or, you know, the, the yeah. college freshman yeah. who has no idea where they're going, right? Or first year in my yeah, politically yeah. correct <laughs> school, the first year, because yes. you can't say freshman. Yeah. Um, Freshmen and women. Yes, uh, they don't know Fresh where people. they don't know where they're going, and they say, "Oh, I want to try X," and then they are just turned off by the either the uh, the quantity or quality of the subject matter. Where ultra learning allows you to, in essence, self gamify, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're 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 adding a challenging aspect to. Okay, this is deep, dense material. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm deeply interested in it, but it's not being presented into a way that is appealing for me. This gamifies that learning process in a way that you can now take, I've always wanted to do cultural anthropology, mm -hmm. but this professor is making it really terrible for me to love this subject. Yeah. Boom. Apply ultra learning. You're like, ah, now I'm sort of getting into it. So uh, one of my friends has this expression, which I really like, which is that you want to see the game being played around you. And I think there's something true of that, of learning that... Um, there's this famous psychologist, uh, Erman Ebbinghaus, and he's one of like the real first experimental psychologists. And he was sort of famous for memorizing nonsense syllables. And you might you think of there's there's something almost you can't imagine a more like you know drudging kind of task in learning than just memorizing nonsense syllables. But the reason he did is because he wanted to understand the role of forgetting, and he wanted to see how does memory work. And so the goal I have with this book is somewhat you know not to get you to memorize nonsense syllables, but get you to see 
not just get interested in the subject, but get interested in the act of learning itself. And so I think as you read the book and you understand a bit more, then even really boring classes, even really classes that frustrate the hell out of you, they become this sort of interesting challenge where you're kind of like, oh, I wonder what would be the way to learn that. And so for me, in doing projects like these ultra learning projects and doing, you know, meeting these people and interviewing stuff, it has really turned. So now when I hear people talk about something that sounds like when people will complain about, oh, it's so difficult and so boring and so much work and this blah, blah, blah. In my head, the gears start turning. I'm like, I wonder, I wonder whether there's like some way that you could do this better than like, I like it just the gears start turning of like, I'm just interested in like, I wonder if there's some way you could do this in like a more effective manner than what people are typically doing. And so all of these things I think are really fascinating. I think once you get fascinated with learning itself, then so many doors open because frustration or difficulty is not an obstacle. It's like part of what makes it a fun puzzle to solve. You know, the way that like people do Sudokus, they don't really care about numbers. They just care about solving a puzzle. I think cultivating that attitude towards learning just opens so many doors for you because, you know, I was learning salsa dancing with my wife recently and I'm not a great dancer. I, I'm, I'm definitely not something that I'm like, you know, an expert in. And while I'm, well, we always it, think of the famous Canadian dance yes, community, yes, right? Yes. Salsa dancing and uh, Canucks are, sexy, yes. Canadian, sexy Canadian, the sexy dance. Canadian lumbata. Yes. Yes. From Manitoba. Yes. Um, uh, with, with the flannel shirt. Thing. No, the, the, the thing I, I found though, is that in a way that I didn't feel before, maybe when I had thought about uh, dancing, it's like, I'm not that good at that. And some people are better. And you know, just the way that a lot of people say, oh, I'm not good at math or I'm not good at languages. But for me, when I was in that class, suddenly after like researching this book and doing a bunch of, you know, deep, deep dives into this, it was sort of like, what are the processes going on? Like, what is the thing that you have to do to get good at? And then I also start noticing like how some of the principles apply are also sometimes some of the ways that they're missing maybe in the instruction and be like, oh no, if I really wanted to get good, I'd have to do this even though they're not teaching it in the class. And so I, I want to give people that, that, not just that tool set, but just a whole attitude that like everything that you want to figure out in life, everything that you want to get good at, there is a system for it. And you, if you understand the principles, you can figure out that system and get good at really anything you want to. Heusinger wrote Homo Ludens, Man the Player, that basically theorized that games and play is what separates humanity from the rest of the animal kingdom. But I think Scott Young hit on something more important. I think, I don't know what Latin for learning is, but I think we should be called homo learner, yeah. the man, the learner, because that's what separates us. Yeah. And I think Scott hit on a really great point that learning is a complete and total process. That is what we do innately and therefore is fun because... We are always learning. We just haven't applied the fact that we are yeah. always learning. Absolutely. And that's sort of a pretty good thing because yeah. this has been a lot to learn with Austin Rogers and we learned about learning. Yeah, Scott Young, Ultra Learning is on shelves and your online retailers everywhere. Yeah. Please purchase this book. I cannot recommend it enough. Scott, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.